please turn in your Bibles and your and uh, your Bibles to our scripture reading today. It is found in the Gospel of John, chapter sixteen, verses twenty-three to thirty-three. It is also found on page eleven of your worship guides. And if you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. And as you do so, know that God's word never, never fails. Hear God's word. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is God's word. Thank you, Dan. We're coming to a transition here in our study of the Gospel of John. Dan has just read for us Jesus' last words, in a sense, to his disciples before he died. This is His closing statement, the conclusion of his teaching before he will be crucified. And this section of Jesus' teaching is often referred to as the upper room discourse. It was the time of the feast of Passover when God's people remembered and celebrated how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They remembered, they celebrated when their ancestors had placed the blood of the lamb on their wooden door frames of their homes and that had saved them from death. God would see the blood, he would pass over, and their lives would be saved. That's the setting, the context of this teaching. And this sermon, you may remember, began back in chapter 13 when Jesus gathered with his disciples in this upper room and he washed their feet and he instituted the Lord's Supper. Judas has left and Jesus is giving them his final words of encouragement before he leaves before he dies and returns to the Father. This is bringing us up to the end of chapter 16. And then, Lord willing, we gather next week and we begin chapter 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer for his disciples. And then in chapter 18, we have his betrayal and arrest, which will lead to his crucifixion, his death. So this is it. 
the last opportunity Jesus has to teach his disciples before he dies. And the concluding words of his last sermon, if you will, are found in verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you. And I think that's referring to at least the whole teaching of this upper room discourse. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a word we don't use too often today. He says it means basically trouble, sorrow. In the world you will have trouble and suffering, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What is the significance of these words? And what hope and encouragement do they bring God's people today? That's what I want to focus on this morning. What does Jesus mean when he says, I have overcome the world? And how did he do that? And why does that encourage us to take heart or to have courage? So first, what does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world? Very simply and basically, it means that Jesus is victorious over the world, the world that is in active rebellion against God. It means that what God promised way back in the beginning, in Genesis 3.15, has been fulfilled. Remember, God spoke those words, and he said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. As he speaks to the serpent and the curse is coming, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now Jesus is about to win that final victory. He's about to deliver the decisive blow in the war from the beginning of time. Jesus is the offspring of the woman. And though Satan will bruise his heel, though it will look like Satan has won the battle for a time, when Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus instead will indeed crush his head through his death and his own resurrection. Now, when Jesus said these last words to his disciples, this hadn't happened yet. Jesus has been talking about it, and here he speaks of it as if it has already happened. It is a certainty. He will die, but he knows he will rise again. It's like that well-known passage in Romans chapter 8, where Paul is writing about all the great blessings we have as children of God. And he says, those whom God predestined, he also called Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, we have not yet been glorified. But it is so certain that Paul writes as if it has already happened. And that's how Jesus speaks here. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has won victory over the world that is an act of rebellion against God. Well, how? How did Jesus win this victory over the world? He did so by his perfect, obedient life, by his sacrificial death on the cross, and by his glorious resurrection from the dead. By his perfect, obedient life, Jesus resisted the temptation of the devil, and he overcame evil at every turn. He always did what pleased the Father. Jesus lived the righteous life that we could not. By his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus showed himself to be the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So this time, it was not simply the blood of an animal placed on the wooden doorframe of a home. It was Jesus' own blood shed on the wooden cross that would be the, the true and eternal salvation of his people, by which he paid for all our sin and finally reconciled us to God. Jesus paid the price for our redemption. He delivered us from slavery, not to the Egyptians, but to sin and death and the devil. And he made the way for us to enjoy both now and forever fellowship with God our Father. When Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two. That barrier between God and man was removed. And he overcame the world. Jesus won this victory over the world also by his glorious resurrection from the dead. Jesus rose victorious over sin and death and the ruler of this world. His resurrection was the final, the decisive sign. Remember, John is a book of signs. And we saw all those signs throughout his gospel. Well, Jesus' resurrection is the final, the decisive sign that proved that he is indeed the Christ, the son of the living God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that Christ executes the office of a king. How does he do this? He does this by subduing us to himself, by ruling and defending us, by restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So Jesus has overcome the world by overcoming our rebellion. It's not just the world out there that is in opposition to God, that is in need. It starts with the world in here, the deadness of our own hearts, the evil within each one of us. And Jesus has overcome our own rebellion. He himself has subdued us to himself and his grace and his mercy. So we are no longer his enemies, but we are now his friends. Remember, the Holy Spirit turns haters into lovers. And Jesus has overcome the world. He has won the victory by doing that in our lives. There has been, beloved, there has been a fundamental change in our relationship with God. We were once his enemies. We are enemies no longer. We are now his friends, his beloved children. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I've overcome the world? It means that he is victorious over the world. And how does Jesus win this victory over the world? How does he overcome the world? He does it by his perfect, obedient life. He does it by his sacrificial death on the cross. And he does it by his glorious resurrection from the dead. Now we turn and we ask this next question, why? Why does that encourage us to take heart or to have courage? And I want to show you three reasons from the text that we have for taking heart or having courage because Jesus has overcome the world. These blessings are ours now because of what Jesus has done. So first, because Jesus has overcome the world, we who trust in him have unlimited direct access to God. We have unlimited direct access to God, to God Almighty the one who is holy, 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 the one before whom the nations tremble, the one who does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Beloved, right now, this very moment, because Jesus Christ has overcome the world, you can talk 
to God. The one true triune God, the creator, the king, the savior. He loves you, he hears you, and he answers your prayers. This is amazing. Don't lose the wonder of it. You can pray. You can pray, and because God the Father himself loves you, he will hear and he will answer. In verses 22 to 27, Jesus talks to his disciples again about asking in his name. This is at least the third time in this upper room discourse that Jesus has addressed this topic. Well, what does it mean to ask in the name of Jesus? We addressed this briefly earlier in John. We'll do so a little more in depth today. So to ask in the name of Jesus, what does that mean? It means to come to God as one who is identified with Jesus Christ by faith. It simply means to come as a Christian as one who believes that Jesus is truly divine, fully divine, the unique Son of God. It's to believe that Jesus died and rose again for your salvation. So it is simply to come to God through the work of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to ask in the name of Jesus? It means to pray in line with the character and the priorities of Christ. It's to pray as Jesus would pray. When the Bible uses that phrase, to ask in someone's name, it's it's to ask as if you were that person. So if one of my kids would come to me and they would say, hey, dad, can we have Little Caesar's pizza for supper tonight in mom's name? I would know that's pretty much blasphemy. She would never ask that. It would be a dead giveaway. But the more we get to know Jesus through his word, the more we know, the more we want, and the more we ask for what he wants. To ask in Jesus' name is to ask for what Jesus would ask for. And then finally, to ask in the name of Jesus means to pray on the basis of his merit. The basis of his merit and not on the basis of your merit at all. Not on the basis of your goodness, your own. Think of it this way, perhaps a simple illustration. If you go to your bank and you write your own name on the check, The only way that that check can be cashed is if you already have enough money in the bank to cover it. But if, on the other hand, you go to the bank with another person's name signed on the check, and that person has an abundance of resources on deposit, well beyond the number that is written on your check, then the check is honored. It is cashed, not because of your name, but because of his name and credit. Jesus Christ has unlimited credit in heaven. And he has granted you, think of it, he's granted you the privilege of going to the bank of heaven with his name on your checks. And so, beloved, if you are in Christ, if you are united to him by faith, there is never a time, there's never a time when you approach God on the basis of your own merit, your own goodness, which means there's never a time when you cannot pray. There's never a time when you are not welcome, when God will not listen to you. You don't have to do penance for a certain length of time before God will receive you back. No matter how bad you've been, what sin you have done, how unworthy you feel, how ashamed you may be, if you are united to Christ by faith, you are always 
welcome on the merit of Jesus through the blood of Christ alone, and you are always accepted, and God is always eager to hear from you. Amen. It works the other way as well. No matter how good you've been, how righteous you think you are, what good deeds you have done, how proud you are, If you're united to Jesus by faith, you always come on the merit of Jesus alone. He doesn't listen to you because of what you've done. He listens because of what Christ has done. The Westminster Catechism question 100 asks this question, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And the answer is this, the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a father, able and ready to help us. Is that how you think of God when you go to prayer? As children to a father, able and ready, eager to help us. Because Jesus has overcome the world God the Father himself loves us and delights to answer our prayers. Through Jesus, we have an entirely new relationship with the Father. This was the first lesson we learned about prayer in our series on the Lord's Prayer. In prayer, Jesus invites us in to enjoy the relationship that he has always enjoyed with the Father. That's the primary lesson about prayer. We now share in that relationship of love. We have incredible, unlimited access to God Almighty, our loving Heavenly Father. In verse 26, Jesus says, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Why not? For the Father himself loves you. For the Father himself loves you. Listen to what Jesus is saying here. We don't offer prayers to Jesus, which he then takes to the Father for us as though he was the Father's secretary. Jesus is indeed our mediator. He is the only one who secures our access to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But now, being united to Jesus by faith, we are now a kingdom of priests. It's the priesthood of all believers. We have direct access to God. It's not whispered down the lane. We don't go to Jesus and then he takes our requests to the Father on our behalf. And prayer is not some formal duty that's on God's job description. God does not listen to us because he's obligated to. There's some fine print in the contract he's now bound by. No, beloved, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you are united with the Son of God. You are family now. And the Father himself loves you. And he loves to hear from you. I wonder what you think God thinks of you. Do you think he's angry with you? Do you think he is apathetic? Do you think he's waiting for you to fix yourself up? Beloved, God the Father himself loves you. Through Jesus, God gave you the right to become his child. And what do children have from their heavenly father if not love? 
Tim Keller says the only person, some of you young parents will relate to this. He says the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. in the morning for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. We have that kind of access to God Almighty, the King of Kings. Do you believe this? Well, why does Jesus say this anyway? Why does he say this? Because he's talking about prayer. And prayer is talking to God. And we will never talk to one whom we believe doesn't want to hear from us. You may have experienced that. You ever have a conversation with someone and you notice they're distracted? They're not really listening? Doesn't that just end the conversation right there? You no longer want to talk with them because you know they don't want to talk with you. But beloved, God does want to hear from us. And Jesus, in some of his last words to his disciples, he affirms, he confirms the open heart that God has towards his children, that warm welcome. Because Jesus has overcome the world. We who trust in him have unlimited direct access to God. It's not, there's no overage charges. There's no limit on the minutes you can use. You, beloved, have that kind of access to that kind of love. So what's keeping us from enjoying God today? The way's been made open. One of the key ways we experience and enjoy the peace we have in Jesus is through prayer, communion with God. Well, second, because Jesus has overcome the world, he has returned on high to reign with the Father, and we will join him one day. Because Jesus has overcome the world, he has returned to reign on high with the Father, and we will join him one day. In verse 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus is reminding the disciples why he came into the world. He was sent by the Father to accomplish a particular mission. He came to make God known, to save his people from their sins. You might remember John wrote in the opening of this gospel, chapter 1, the prologue. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus standing before the disciples, speaking these words. This is God in the flesh. Come to make God known. We'll see in chapter 17 in his prayer, Jesus will say, I made known to them your name. He accomplished his purpose. He revealed God to them and to us. Jesus made God known by his very presence, and he was about to lay down his life for the sheep to save his people from their sins. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia a few years before Dr. Boyce came there. And one time, Boyce tells the story that that Barnhouse was having this conversation with some of the young people from the church. He was talking to them about the atonement the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. And he used this illustration of a judge who saw his son come before him and the son was accused of reckless driving and the charge was clearly proven. The son was guilty without a doubt. And so he fined the young man the full extent that the law would allow. He upheld justice and then the judge adjourned the court. 
And after the court was adjourned, he stepped down from the bench and he paid his son's fine. And one of the young ladies who had been listening intently objected. But God, the holy God, cannot get down off the bench. And Barnhouse said, you've just given me one of the greatest illustrations of the incarnation I could ever have. He said, for Jesus Christ was no more or less than God himself come down off the bench to pay the fine that he had imposed upon us. When Jesus says he is leaving the world and going back to the Father, that means he has finished the work that God sent him to do. He's accomplished his purpose. He has fulfilled his mission. He left his throne and glory in heaven. He came down and he paid for our guilt, for our sin when he was crucified on the cross. He rose again three days later and the work of redemption was done. It was complete. So we can be confident as we come to God on the basis of Christ's finished work. We heard this good news in Revelation chapter 5. The Apostle John who wrote this gospel had that vision and he wrote it down for us. There's this vision. There's, there's no one worthy to open the scroll until one of the elders says, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He has overcome. He is victorious. And John turns, and what does he see? He sees the Lamb of God. And the elders cry out, worthy are you, for you were slain. And by your blood, what? What did Jesus accomplish? You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what? You have made them a kingdom, and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They shall reign on the earth, beloved, because Jesus has overcome the world. Not only has he returned to reign on high with the Father where he is reigning right now, but we will join him one day. This, this is not only amazing, this is breathtakingly amazing. Finally, because Jesus has overcome the world, we take heart. We have courage. Because in the midst of trouble and suffering, in the midst of trouble and suffering, we have peace in Jesus. Perfect peace, the peace that passes all understanding. Jesus says in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, trouble, and sorrow, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And beloved, it is vital, it's essential that we understand that this peace is in Jesus. It's not in this world. It's not in people or possessions or our present circumstances. No, to the contrary, Jesus makes it clear, in the world you will have trouble and sorrow. But the reason that we can have peace in the midst of the trouble and the sorrow is entirely dependent on Jesus himself, who he is, what he has done for us, what he promises to do. And we have sure confidence of this because we've seen God already do this. God used the most wicked event in human history. The murder of the innocent Holy One through the cursed death on the cross. God used that tribulation, that trouble, that sorrow for his own purposes. 
for his own glory, for the good and the salvation of the world, including you, if you trust in Jesus today. That wicked event was the ultimate display of God's power and triumph, his mercy and love, his grace and justice. And so, beloved, what reason do you have for being troubled? You can indeed take heart. You can have courage because no matter what befalls you, no matter how troubling or sorrowful it is now, For those who trust in Jesus, God will turn it for good. He will use it for good without exception. Without exception. No matter how difficult, no matter how hard, no matter how sad or painful it is. You know, in just a moment, we will sing a well-known, a well-loved hymn. It is well with my soul, or maybe you know it as peace like a river. We just sang it two weeks ago. So normally we don't sing songs, hymns that close together, unless maybe we are trying to teach you a new hymn. But I thought it fit well with our sermon theme today. And I also thought that the story behind the hymn fit well. Perhaps you have heard it before. It's a well-known and told story. But the The story goes like this, true story. In 1874, a French steamer was on a homeward voyage from America, and and on that journey, it collided with another sailing vessel, and it quickly began to sink so that nearly all who were on board were lost. Mrs. Horatio Spafford was one of those people who was on board along with her four children, her four daughters, and after the collision, she gathered her daughters together and they knelt and they prayed. They prayed that they might be saved or that they would have the courage to face what may come. And when the ship went down, all four of her children were lost. They perished. Mrs. Spafford herself alone was rescued from that family gathering. And 10 days later, she reached Cardiff and she sent her husband this telegram Saved alone. He had heard of the accident. Can you imagine getting that telegram? Saved alone. For parents to lose all four of their children at once would have to be one of the greatest heartbreaks in life. A terrible tribulation, an overwhelming sorrow, and indeed it was. But it did not take away the peace that they had in Jesus. And so Mr. Horatio Spafford wrote the hymn that we are about to sing after receiving that telegram. He got on the boat to go be with his grief-stricken wife and on that journey across the very same seas that took the lives of his four daughters, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Beloved, why can we take heart? Why can we take heart? Because Jesus has overcome. Because Jesus has triumphed over 
the world. He has defeated sin and death and the devil. Every trouble and sorrow of this life so that whatever our lot, God will turn it to good. The very cause of our sorrow will become the cause of joy. So that our sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. So that the day is coming when our faith will be turned to sight. Because Jesus has overcome the world, we may have peace in him. Peace in the midst of the trouble and the suffering. For now it's not the absence of of the trouble and suffering. It's in the midst of the trouble and suffering. And this is a peace only Jesus can give. You cannot have it or find it anywhere else. These were Jesus' final words to his disciples. What will be the final word in your life? Beloved, it won't be your failures. It won't be your fears. It won't be your troubles. What will be the final word in your life? It will be Jesus' triumph. It will be his finished work. It will be his perfect peace. Whatever the trouble now, the peace will prevail. For now, the peace is not the absence of sorrow or trouble. It's the presence of God. It is the contentment and trust in God. But the day is coming. The day is coming when this peace will be perfect shalom. Yes, it will continue to be perfect contentment and trust in God, the full enjoyment of God. But it will also be the total and complete absence of sorrow and trouble. For now we are in the world, but not of it. But then we will be out of this present world and we will be in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus. No more sorrow, no more death, no more tears, no more sickness. For now, we who trust in Jesus are saints, sufferers, and sinners. But in the end, in the final day, we will be saints only the suffering and the sinning gone forever, not even a memory. Beloved, remember this, know this for yourself and for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you think about this? Do you see yourself in this way? Do you see others in this way? Beloved, take heart. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer of God's elect, the true prophet, priest, and king, the Lamb of God who was for sinners slain, he is making all things new. The Lion of the tribe of Judah has risen from the dead and he reigns over all as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus has indeed overcome the world so that in him you may have perfect peace through all eternity. Amen. Amen.